Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella. I'm the co-host of the show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. This is the Independence Day special show, y'all, and we are so happy to have with us today. I couldn't think of a better guest, Tyler, more important guy to to lead us through this conversation than Professor William Fowler from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Professor Fowler, uh, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Well, thank you very much, and happy Independence Day. Absolutely. We are thrilled to have you on board with us today, Professor Fowler. Uh, Professor Fowler is an esteemed professor of American history, and uh, in particular, he specializes in the history of the Revolutionary War, uh, the period of our independence as a nation. Uh, and in particular, he knows a thing or two about the uh, naval and maritime history, which we are going to focus on on today's show. But before we dive into that, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, we have three uh, sponsors to thank that help Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network exist. Uh, Frederic Barrasset and her team at Dune Doctors in Pensacola, Florida, experts in natural dune restoration for all you folks considering what to do about sea level rise or a little bit of erosion. And you're down in Florida on the Southeast Atlantic shoreline. Give Frederic a call. She's at dunedoctors.com. Good friend Michael Poff and his firm, Coastal Engineering Consultants, just a great consulting firm. You've heard me say it time and time again. Uh, if you listen to this show, you know that you can trust them to find cost-effective uh, solutions. They're great in the community. You can learn more about them at CoastalEngineering.com. And finally, LJA Engineering with 28 offices in Texas and around the Gulf Coast, uh, led by our good friend in the Coastal Division, Bill Worsham. Excellent firm, does a lot of work uh, on ports, uh, shorelines. Great guy, great firm. Find them at LJA Dot com. All right, Professor Fowler, let's uh, let's start here uh, at the very beginning. We're going to go back in time. Let's go back in time to uh, the Revolutionary War period, the colonial period in America. And I thought it would be great if, if you would just describe for us, for us what the uh, American shoreline would have looked like back then. Uh, where would the people have been? Uh, what was what were the colonies like uh, on the American shoreline? Well, Tyler, in the 18th century, at the time of the American Revolution, Americans were a sea-minded people. That is, it was the sea that had brought them to North America. It was the sea that was a moat that protected them from the tribulations of Europe. And it was the sea from which they gained their living, gained their living as fishermen and gained their living in trading. Uh, so the major American cities at the time, places like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, were all cities whose face set to the sea. While many Americans, in fact most of the population, were rural, nonetheless the economy of the British North American colonies was very much dependent upon the ocean. And so everyone was familiar with that. Within 18th century America, there were probably somewhere in the order of 20,000 sailors. Now, that might not seem very large, but in the 18th century, sailors made up the single largest wage-earning group. That is, everyone else, or many other people were farmers, but the largest wage-earning group was sailors. Wow. So they gave a real tone to America. And it was through these seaports that news from Europe arrived. It was through these seaports 
that American exports the produce that we sent to the world. Uh, some of that produce, of course, intimately related to the African slave trade, in which Americans were connected via rum, molasses, and slaves. So it was a vibrant maritime economy. The sea was absolutely at the heart of what America was, hmm. the American colonies. It was also a fact of being part of the British Empire. The British Empire in the 18th century was the largest, most powerful empire in the world. And American merchantmen operated within that empire. They were protected by the might of the Royal Navy. But there was a downside, too. You know, in the 18th century, every once in a while, peace broke out, but not often. The empire was always at war with someone, whether it be the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, or the Dutch. Didn't matter whom. War was always prevalent. And in wartime, American seafarers went to war for the empire. Hmm. Just as we had militia on shore, on the land, to protect our borders, so too we had American seamen going to defend and to attack the enemies of the empire. During wartime, American merchant owners would take their ships and they would go to the royal governor and ask for a commission to be a privateer, mm. which is to say to go out and to be able to hunt the enemies of the king, which they did. Sometimes they were successful, oftentimes they were not. But the whole point of this is that by the eve of the American Revolution, we had a long tradition of battling at sea. We had a long tradition of seafaring. One-third of all the ships in the British Empire had been built in the American colonies. So it's hardly a surprise, then, that when the war began, when the revolution began, just as we challenged the British on land, that we would also challenge the British at sea. Well, so a couple of things jumped out at me in that introduction, uh, that there were 20,000 sailors, essentially, in the American colonies, the largest yes. paid uh, in, you know, group, I guess, a profession in, in the colonies, that's an, and one-third of the British naval ships were being built in the Americas. So, Not naval ships. One-third of the British merchant marine. Merchant marine. Did, so was our yeah. shipbuilding capacity and expertise in early America pretty well developed? Yes. From the very beginning, when the early colonists arrived in the early part of the 17th century, uh, certainly up here in New England, uh, they thought they were going to be farmers. Well, that didn't work out so well. The soil was very rocky. So they turned to the sea uh, for very good reason, the very rich fishing grounds. And once they realized the richness of the fishing grounds, then they began to build vessels. So almost from the very beginning of settlement, uh, American colonists were building vessels to go, to go seafaring, either go, to go fishing or to trade with Europe and trade with the West Indies. So shipbuilding was essential right at the very beginning. Uh, we sh should remember, too, that... Uh, Wooden shipbuilding in the 17th and 18th century was not all that complicated. Hmm. And these were people who were experienced carpenters. They knew how to build homes. They knew how to hew timber. And so building a vessel wasn't a terribly difficult hmm. thing. And along the coastline, wherever you had rivers, that is deep water, and forests nearby, you had all the essentials for shipbuilding. And so that the pine, the white oak, and then the rivers were along the shores. You could set up shipyards. It all worked very, very well. 
So shipbuilding was a thriving, thriving industry in colonial America. Hmm. So coming into the Civil War, as we at Civil War, the Revolutionary War, the colonies, you know, the colonists are, of course, we're fine with King George for a long time. Uh, we're going into this this confrontation. Uh, the British Navy at the time, the most powerful on the planet, wasn't it? And and. As we went into that conflict, boy, that must have been a frightening prospect to, to stand up to what was at the time the superpower of the world. No question about that. Uh, at the time of the American Revolution, of course, the British had just recently defeated the French in the French and Indian War, and the Royal Navy stood at perhaps 800 to 1,000 ships. It was clearly the greatest naval power in the world. But, you know, we need to put this in a little bit of perspective. So, too, was the British Army, a highly professional army. It wasn't the biggest in the world, but certainly it had managed to conquer and maintain an empire. And so the fact that Americans were willing to cha- challenge the British at sea sort of matched our uh, chutzpah in challenging <laughs> the British moxie. on land as well. Uh, so it was, it was a bit of a, a, a reach, I think, to challenge the British Navy, but we had no reason to think why we couldn't do mm. it. And those 20,000 seamen that I mentioned, they had a particular grievance against the Royal Navy, the issue of impressment that was often the case in the 18th century when merchant sailors would be impressed, that is, just taken off the streets and put in the Royal Navy. Uh, So American seamen had grudges against the Royal Navy. Mm. So I think perhaps the opportunity to to strike against His Majesty's ships was rather attractive to some of these men. Interesting. And of course, now I'm not a historian, uh, uh, but I do remember from uh, my early American history the story of the Boston Tea Party. So was the Revolutionary War essentially kicked off on a ship? That's a very good point. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. You're absolutely right. It was sort of kicked off on a ship. That is when we kicked off the tea from right, the ship. Right, right. Uh, so there it was in Boston Harbor. Yes, it was a, uh, I, I guess we could call it a maritime incident uh, that was sort of the spark that started the fire. Yeah, and I would love to uh, understand the role. So obviously we have the, there's the Boston Tea Party. Uh, take us through the the uh, the TikTok of events that kind of lead into the the first naval engagement of the uh, Revolutionary War. All right. Well, I think we all know about April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five, uh, the battles at Lexington and later at Concord at North Bridge, where American militia turned the British back. They had been marching out to Concord to seize some arms and ammunition. And so the British are now, on the 19th of April, chased back to Boston. As they're chased back to Boston, militia from all of the surrounding areas begin to gather, and the British find themselves under siege in the city of Boston, surrounded by American militia. Shortly after that, the Second Continental Congress meets in Philadelphia. And as soon as the Congress meets in Philadelphia, they are presented with a number of petitions from New England, And what these petitions say, they ask the Continental Congress to adopt the army that has gathered around Boston. The Congress agrees and adopts the army. That's a momentous moment, because at that moment, the Second Continental Congress has adopted an army that is standing against the king. Mm. So this becomes the Continental Army. Well, a Continental Army needs a commander, don't they? And so after some brief discussion, they elect George Washington, the Virginian. 
So he's a Virginian now who's going to command the New England Army. So wow. Washington comes to Cambridge, and on July the 3rd, 1775, George Washington takes command of the Continental Army. Now, the British, who are holed up in Boston, have no access to land, but they do have free access to the sea. And the British in Boston are supplied by supply vessels coming in from England to deliver supplies and men. Uh, there's nothing to stop them. Washington, who's a very keen observer, notices this. And there's a colonel from Marblehead, Massachusetts, a man named John Glover. John Glover suggests to Washington, might it not be a good idea to have some American ships intercepting those British supply ships coming in? Washington agrees, a good idea. And so Washington, with Glover's help, commissions the first American vessel in the American Navy. It is the Hannah. She's a small schooner, and he commissions her in September of 1775 and sends the Hannah out to attack the British supply vessels wow. coming in. It is a tremendous success. And within a few weeks, Washington has commissioned six other vessels. So now there are seven vessels in this kind of tiny little squadron out there, harassing the British and capturing British supply ships. So that's the birth of the American Navy. Down in Philadelphia, when the Continental Congress sees the success of this, now mind you, Washington has more or less been doing this on his own so far, uh, but they see the success and they are convinced that there needs to be a more continental effort. That is an effort by the nation, not just Washington. And so the Congress, on October the 13th, 1775, authorizes the construction of ships to fight the British, and a committee of Congress is established to oversee the effort. Now that's important because the United States Navy takes as its birthday, October the 13th, 1775. Wow. So, moving forward from Washington's little tiny fleet now to a continental fleet, which is under the command, under the jurisdiction of the Continental Congress. So we are now the American colonies, even before independence now, mind you. We don't declare independence until the next year, 1776. Right. But before independence, we're already battling the British at sea. And did, was George Washington, he was the head of the Continental Army, I think we all know that, was he, was he the commander of the Continental Navy as well? No, he wasn't. That's a very good question. Uh, initially, of course, when in Boston, when these vessels are operating under his authority, he commands them. But as soon as the Congress establishes a Continental Navy, they uh, appoint a commander-in-chief of the Continental Navy, a man named Isaac Hopkins from Rhode Island. Uh, so Washington does not command the Continental Navy. It is commanded at first by Isaac Hopkins uh, from Rhode Island. So, uh, Professor, in addition to kind of these coastal raids where they would go out and try to uh, intercept a merchant ship uh, and, I guess, steal whatever's on it, as well as preventing your adversary from getting it, so it's a win-win, uh, in addition to that, what was the uh, Navy's, the Continental Navy's uh, strategy in prosecuting this long shot of a war against the greatest Navy in, um, in the world, the British Imperial Navy? Well, it was more a hope than a reality. Uh, the, the Congress was impoverished. I mean, we didn't have much money. Ships are very, very expensive to build and very expensive to man. 
when you look at a warship of the 18th century, they're rated by number of guns. And as a rough estimate, take the number of guns on the vessel and multiply by 10. So if it's a 32-gun ship, that means it takes over 300 men wow. to man it. So they're, they're huge consumers of money just to be built, huge consumers for maintenance and then for personnel. Uh, so the Congress had high hopes of getting a, a number of vessels out there. They never really succeeded in challenging the Royal Navy. But what they did manage to do was to distract it and harass it. Uh, American ships, Continental Navy, and by the way, privateers. But during the war, there were many, many more privateers at sea than there were Continental Navy vessels. And these ships were able to attack the British, distract them, uh, make the Royal Navy assign vessels to patrols which they might otherwise have been used in other parts of the war. And the American ships also brought supplies back to America. And the American ships uh, brought American uh, diplomats to Europe. Uh, for example, the frigate Boston uh, delivered John Adams to France, which was, of course, a critical thing. Adams represented us in Europe, as did other Americans. And also, the American vessels showed the flag the American flag in Europe. And I think that was a very critical thing. Hmm. Uh, had we not had a Continental Navy, Europe might have not have known much about the rebelling American colonies. But when American ships began to show up in European waters, it drew attention. It certainly drew hmm. the attention of the French, uh, who would become our allies. So they were very important, and I guess we would use the expression, showing the flag. Right. you got to have they, a flag. They also, they also had uh, an important effect... Uh, Take the, for example, uh, the cruise of John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones uh, took his vessel, uh, the Bonhomme Richard was her name, mm -hmm. and sailed her around the British Isles in 1779, even landing uh, in uh, on the uh, coast of Scotland. Now, to be sure, from a strategic point of view, maybe not all that important, but oh, what a humiliation it was to the British that these rebels could invade their waters. Wow. And then, of course, coming around Flamborough Head in 1779, there's one of the most epic battles in American naval history, not just the revolution, uh, between the Bonhomme Richard and the British ship Serapis. Okay, now be before, Paul, we, before we get into John Paul Jones, because I really, the story of John Paul Jones, I uh, absolutely want to cover, and I also want to hear about the crypt of John Paul Jones at the U.S. Naval Academy and the story of how he ended up there. But in this early formation, there was a couple things in the in the research for this uh, show that we we went over. Uh, I was very interested to learn that there was something called the Massachusetts Navy that they were actually yeah. naval militias. I knew, you know, we all I think as Americans are familiar with the militias that were on uh, that were commanded. Uh, by George Washington, and we didn't have a standing army and all that. But we hadn't—I didn't know this. We had Navy militias. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how they fit in to the Continental Navy? That's a very good question. Uh, actually, during the American Revolution, uh, there were uh, probably 14 navies. That's not counting privateers now. They're, they're, those are private vessels. Each state had its own navy. As, as you mentioned, Massachusetts had its own navy. So you had 13 state navies, and then you had a continental navy, which is not unusual when you think about the American Revolution. It was much like the American army. 
that is, the American Army was made up of a, a variety of state units and then a Continental Army as well. Hmm. Uh, so the Americans then fought at a, a variety of levels, and each of the states did, in fact, send to sea a state navy. Usually they were rather small and maybe not terribly effective in some ways. Uh, but yeah, there, so there were a variety of, you might call them naval militias, and that indeed is what they were. What, what was our best early ship? I think in the Continental Navy, we had the Andrea Doria and uh, I think the Cabot. Uh, in, the, in, in our best, what was our best power ship early on in the, in the, in the fight with the British? Andrea Doria was the flagship, the first flagship, uh, of the fleet that was commanded by Isaac Hopkins. Uh, very early on, uh, the Continental Navy created this great group of vessels led by Hopkins, none of them really built to be warships, by the way. This was early in the war. We hadn't yet begun to build warships. And Isaac Hopkins and his fleet were sent down to the Bahamas, uh, and they captured, they actually captured Nassau. Uh, the reason for going to Nassau was the fort at Nassau had a large amount of provisions and gunpowder, cannon, etc., which the American Army needed. And so Hopkins's fleet went, went ashore. And by the way, this is the first time in American history. Uh, it's an amphibious operation, and the Marines go ashore at, right. <laughs> at Nassau. Uh, and Hopkins' fleet didn't manage. They did manage to seize the fort and did bring back munitions. Uh, Andrea Doria, I guess for people today, that reminds people of the great Italian liner that had a tragic fate there off the coast of America when she sank. But at the time, during the American Revolution, Andrea Doria was a great Italian hero. He was a Genoese admiral who had fought for the, for the freedom of Genoa. So he was, Andrea Doria was seen as a hero of liberty. Uh, wow. wow. And, you know, I, I think that it's interesting for us when we're talking about these ships going out and people coming in, you know, the the craft, the sea craft, the, the, the actual skill to uh, maneuver these vessels. You're obviously, they're sailing vessels, so you have to be able to read the conditions of that very moment. Um, and, and then I'm curious if you would take us through a little bit of what the conditions were like on these vessels. How long could they be deployed? Um, what was life like at, at sea in those early days? Well, one of the first things to remember about these early sailing warships is how crowded they were. That is to say, as I mentioned, it took hundreds of seamen. So they're extremely crowded. Uh, the discipline is very severe and can be very harsh. Uh, people who didn't obey the rules, were caught in violation of the rules, were often flogged, that is, whipped, which was a rather common punishment. Uh, it was difficult service on board them. One of the great problems that they had was you could not be at sea for a very long period of time before disease set in. Most commonly, of course, disease of scurvy, but there are all kinds of other diseases, too, that would invade the ship. So these are kind of tiny wooden worlds. Now, they're, they're wooden vessels that are sailing confined in their own world. And so they were subject to disease, the men below, subject to harsh punishment. And then, of course, there was the matter of combat, of fighting. Uh, and this was a matter of vessels with just their floating wooden forts. There was nothing particularly clever about the battle between wooden ships. They would come side by side and battle one another. They battle one another with cannon. They were firing solid iron shot. This is not exploding shot. These are solid iron balls weighing sometimes 24 pounds, sometimes as much as 32 pounds. 
and they simply slammed into one another. So the carnage on board these vessels could be considerable. And so the battles could take a very heavy toll. Uh, so it was a gruesome business. Uh, and for the privateers who were involved, they were involved with it for the money. Uh, so they went out, tried to capture vessels, then bring them back and sell the cargo. Mm. For the sailors, either in the state navies or in the continental navies, they did not necessarily get the profits uh, from a capture. They were paid wages and salaries. And that was one of the reasons why it was very difficult uh, for the continental navy to recruit sailors, because it was far more profitable to serve on board a privateer. Mm. Let me ask you about, uh, would it be fair to say, uh, Professor Fowler, uh, would it be fair to characterize the American Revolution as principally a naval engagement? Or was it, is that unfair, would that that be unfair to say about the American Revolution? I think it is quite fair to say, quite accurate to say, that the American Revolution was very much a naval war. But it was a naval war that was critical, that was fought and won by the French. Uh, Mm. When the French joined us as allies in 1778, they made the American Revolution now a world war. Before the French joined us, it was a matter of the British trying to put down the American rebels. Once the French get into it, it becomes a world war, Mm. which means now that the Royal Navy is going to have to protect colonies, possessions around the world that are challenged by the French. Wow. And so now for the next uh, three years or so, the British and French navies are going to maneuver, toying, fighting with one another. Uh, and that becomes critical, absolutely critical to the revolution. In particular, one very special battle. Americans, of course, rightly celebrate Washington's victory at Yorktown in 1781. Perhaps what they don't remember, or don't understand, is that victory at Yorktown was made possible by the French. Mm. uh, Because when General Cornwallis, the British commander, retreated to Virginia from South Carolina, he sent a message to New York, where the British headquarters was, and he asked for ships to come and either reinforce him or help him to evacuate. The British commander in New York City sent a British fleet southward to aid General Cornwallis. That fleet was met by a French fleet off the Capes, the Chesapeake Capes. And there, in what's called the Battle of the Capes in September of 1781, the British fleet was turned back by the French. Mm. That doomed General Cornwallis. He could now neither be evacuated nor reinforced. And he would, of course, about a month later, surrender for gen- to General Washington. And that would so that was, was that the end. That French victory, yeah. That that French naval victory that turned the tide. Very interesting. And so that I think that the role of the French Navy uh, is something that I've rediscovered in getting ready to talk to you uh, about the significance of their role in the American Revolution. Uh, but we had some pretty good sailors and some pretty good commanders. And the one that comes to mind for me and probably for most Americans is John Paul Jones. Uh, oh, yes. is, is he the most predominant uh, or most important American naval commander during the war? And can you tell us the story, uh, his rather interesting story of John Paul Jones? Well, John Paul Jones is certainly the most Ameri- famous American commander, naval commander of the Revolution. In fact, he's arguably, I suppose, 
maybe one of the most famous American naval commanders uh, in all of our history. He's almost like the Jones, Michael Jordan of the American yeah, Navy. <laughs> precisely. Uh, Jones is a Scotsman, uh, comes to America just uh, before the American Revolution. Timing is everything. He arrives just in time. He is an ex- he's a very he's a veteran seaman, not in the British Navy. He's a merchantman. And so he offers his services to the Americans. He's given a commission uh, in the Continental Navy. Uh, serves very well in the early days of the war. And then in 1779, he is dispatched uh, to Europe, to France. France is now our ally. And so he's sent to France. He's sent to France because he wants to get a bigger ship. Navy captains always want a bigger ship. And so he goes to France, hoping that Benjamin Franklin, uh, minister to France, who was a very, very cagey, eloquent, clever man, would Benjamin Franklin would be able to get the French to give him, John Paul Jones, a big warship. Well, it doesn't quite work out that way. Uh, and all Franklin can get the French to give up is this old merchantman, um, merchant vessel that had been in the East India trade. Her name was the Duke of Duras. Hmm. And she was kind of old. She was leaky. You know, wasn't really what Jones wanted. But it's all he could get. So he took her. He renamed her the Bonhomme Richard. Good man, Richard, uh, in honor of Benjamin Franklin. Uh. And, and now he, in company with some other vessels, goes on this epic cruise around the British Isles. It is an epic, epic cruise. The British are beside themselves uh, to have Americans invading their waters. And so Jones now is sailing around, goes around the north of the, of the British Isles, and is coming down uh, through the, towards the English Channel. He stops a fisherman, uh, and he asks the f- fisherman, you know, what's going on? What's around here? Anybody coming? And the fisherman tells him that the Baltic fleet is on its way home. Now, the Baltic fleet was the fleet that was bringing back to England all of the necessary items for shipbuilding, car, pitch, turpentine, timber. I guess it would be like for us a, a, an oil fleet coming in with supplies, much-needed supplies. And so Jones decides he's going to intercept the Baltic fleet. Does he have so one he, ship? Is he alone here? No, he has a, He has other vessels, smaller vessels with him, including a, another vessel called the Alliance. Okay. But he's at the heart of this. And so John Paul Jones now lies in wait for the Baltic fleet. This is in wow. September now of 1779. Well, sure enough, it shows up. There it is, coming down from the northeast. And so he sort of waits. Now, by the way, he's flying the British flag. <laughs> they always did this, okay? They always did this. They were just, uh, you know, tricking people, right? I mean... Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. And so the Baltic fleet is escorted by HMS Serapis. As HMS Serapis gets close, the captain of Serapis, Richard Pearson, is suspicious... But not certain. And so as he gets within hailing distance of Bonhomme Richard, he calls out to Bonhomme Richard, Who are you? And John Paul Jones replies, The Princess Royal. And just at the moment, as he says, Princess Royal, opens the gun ports and the battle begins. Wow. And this is an epic battle between these two vessels, Bonhomme Richard and Serapis. At one point in the battle, when Captain Pearson thinks he's getting the best of it, he calls over to Jones, Do you surrender, sir? And Jones is supposed to have replied, 
I have not yet begun to fight. Right. The battle and continues, and Serapis strikes her flag. Uh, Jones has is the victor. In the aftermath, however, Von Holm Richard is so severely Im, uh, hurt, damaged, that she sinks. Uh, so she's there at rest and off the Flamborough Head, there off the British waters, and he returns to France in command of Serapis. It is an extraordinary victory. Wow. There, there is a footnote, however. There is a footnote. And that is that Captain Pearson did his job. That is, his job was to defend the Baltic fleet. The fleet got home safely. Jones did not take any of the Baltic fleet. So Captain Pearson sacrificed his ship, but he succeeded in his mission. So Jones's victory, which is much celebrated, victory over Serapis yet, but the British got the Baltic fleet home. And he ends up with the Serapis. Was that a trade-up in, uh, in military hardware for him? No, no. No, Serapis goes, he sells Serapis. That, he does not take her to sea as a warship. Uh, uh, Jones goes on to continue service uh, in the American Navy. Uh, nothing quite so glamorous or glorious as his victory there. And then after the American Revolution, <laughs> John Paul Jones goes to Russia. Right. Uh, I, he, I couldn't, you know, I, this was another yeah, thing he, about, he, he becomes a rear admiral in the, when he goes to Russia. Yes, he serves the Tsarina, uh, in, and he's an admiral in the black in the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Wow. It doesn't go so well for him. I suspect this uh, this uh, American slash Scotsman, uh, his Russian wasn't very good if he had any Russian at all. <laughs> the other Russian officers didn't like him very much, and he was not very successful in the Black Sea. Does and is it is it true that he is considered uh, the father of the American Navy? Number one. And number two, I understand he dies in France, I think in Paris, but his body ends yes. up at the United States Naval Academy. How right, does right. that happen? Well, Jones returns from, from Russia and uh, takes up residence in Paris. Uh, and then he dies in Paris and is buried in a Protestant cemetery, which, of course, now keep in mind, this is Catholic Paris, so Protestant cemeteries aren't very common. Uh, and there he's buried and, and more or less forgotten. You know, I mean, he's remembered in history, but nothing very special. Well, now let's fast forward to the uh, early 20th century. We have a president named Teddy Roosevelt, and Teddy Roosevelt is a big, big, big naval fan. It's Teddy Roosevelt who sent the American Great White Fleet on a round-the-world cruise. Uh, so Teddy Roosevelt's a big promoter of the Navy. Well, lo and behold, he gets a message from the American minister to France. And the American minister to France informs the president that in a recent excavation, apparently for a new building or something like that, they have found the body of John Paul Jones. Now, how do they know it's John Paul Jones? Well, John Paul Jones was buried in a cask of liquor. And so the body was sort of mummified. When he was alive, uh, the great French sculptor Houdon did a bust of John Paul Jones. It is the bust and the skeletal remains are identical. So clearly this is John Paul Jones. Well, Teddy Roosevelt has his moment. He decides to gonna bring the great American hero home. Roosevelt dispatches the United States cruiser Brooklyn to bring John Paul Jones home. I mean this is a great ceremony. They bring him home. 
and they bring him to the Naval Academy, and there in the Naval Academy Chapel, as it's called, he's placed in a huge bronze sarcophagus that is held up by four leaping dolphins. He is buried in more splendor than almost any other American I can think of. And so the tomb there, the grave of John Paul Jones, becomes this enormous icon to American naval history. It's there today, by the way. And should anyone be visiting the Naval Academy, it's well worth a visit down into the crypt to see the burial, the sarcophagus of John Paul Jones. Unbelievable. I have looked at the photograph, and I have to t- say, it's, 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 uh, you think it was a pope or something. I mean, the ornateness oh. of that thing reminds me of what uh, great Italian burials <laughs> look like. Well, there is. There is a kind of a common saying at the Naval Academy, and that is, everyone works, but John Paul Jones. <laughs> <laughs> now, did they drain him out of the uh, cask of liquor when they did that, or what <laughs> you know? Did he stay immersed well, in, know, in actually, booze? <laughs> it wasn't uncommon. When, uh, when Admiral Nelson was killed at Trafalgar, 1805, they shipped him home uh, in a, uh, a barrel of liquor, brandy of some kind, I guess, uh, <laughs> which, of course gave rise to the uh, the rum sometimes referred to as Nelson's blood. Oh, wow. So, so I, yeah, that was not, not unusual to uh, ship them home in a, in a way that would preserve the body in some fashion. Uh, before we move on entirely from uh, uh, John Paul Jones, you know, he's given this just place of prominence at the Naval Academy. And it, I have had the, personally had the pleasure of visiting uh, the chapel and seeing that. And it it really is like it's something else. Uh, I can't think of anything else, uh, any other, you know, comparatively where George Washington is laid to rest or even Abraham Lincoln, you know, kind of kind of plain Jane compared to this. Uh, right. This is incredible. No, there is there is nothing to compare to this huge bronze sarcophagus that and these don't know. It's really quite spectacular. It really is. So, um I, w- I guess just to put a bookend on it, uh, Professor, how would you care? What, what is John Paul Jones's legacy, uh, aside from his ornate burial? Uh, incredibly, uh, that's a long shot battle. I'm reminded of kind of other American naval audacity, uh, whether it's the Doolittle raid in World War II or, um, you know, some great escapes that happened uh, also in the Pacific Theater. But, you know, d- d- is is his legacy kind of this uh, long odds? Uh, you know, c- you know, he wasn't necessarily fighting fair. I'll tell you that. Like he, he did whatever it took to gain the advantage. Uh, what's his legacy like? I think the legacy is one of, of courage. That is that is a legacy. Courage in the midst of battle, in the midst of this horrific carnage that's going on, his courage and his leadership um, that he led his his vessel, which to some degree Bonhomme Richard was the weaker in many ways. Bonhomme Richard was the weaker vessel for a variety of reasons, but that didn't deter John Paul Jones. He was a man of courage and determination, a great naval hero, uh, and carries on that tradition. I'm reminded that uh, this Naval Academy tradition, of course, of John Paul Jones is also something else at the Academy that speaks to the same level of courage, and that is the flag that uh, uh, that uh, uh, Lieutenant Perry f- uh, flew at the Battle of Lake Erie during the War of 1812, and the flag that he flew was uh, Captain Lawrence's last words. Captain Lawrence had been commander of the ship Chesapeake, uh, and in a battle with the British, this is in the War of 1812, and in a battle with the British frigate Shannon, uh, 
Lawrence had been struck down and he was taken down below. And his last words were supposed to be, don't give up the ship. And so when Peary was engaging with the British at on Lake Erie about a year or so later, he flew from his top mast a flag that said, wow. don't give up the ship. Uh, that flag that, don't, that uh, Perry was flying, uh, don't give up the ship, is on display at the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. So I think those two icons, uh, don't give up the, the flag, don't give up the ship, and John Paul Jones's uh, burial site remind uh, the midshipmen and others should remind all Americans of the courage and valor and determination of these, Amer- of these American naval commanders. Wow. It's a fantastic story uh, about the Revolutionary War, the unlikely success, I would say, but thanks to a big hand from the French. Uh, I yeah. know this. I think I wanted to ask you about a couple uh, of, of things that happened after the American Revolution, but were early in the history of the Navy, and that is the USS Constitution and the frigates that we, you know, old Ironsides, and that that ship, if I'm not mistaken, did not fight in the Revolutionary War, but was was soon thereafter. Can can you tell us a little bit about how the Navy came into its prime after the uh, Revolutionary War and about the USS Constitution? Well, from 1783, at the end of the American Revolution, uh, until 1794, there really was no American Navy. Uh, but the New Republic, which is established when Washington takes the oath of office, 1789, the New Republic is bedeviled uh, by a number of challenges overseas. One of those challenges comes in the Mediterranean from the Barbary Corsairs. Uh, when we were part of the British Empire, uh, we were covered under kind of a general insurance policy. That is to say, the Barbary Corsairs would seize European vessels, and to prevent their vessels from being seized, European powers would pay uh, an annual ransom, fees, shall we say. And that's exactly what the British did. When we were part of the empire, our vessels were covered under that uh, fee, I guess. Once we were independent, of course, we were on our own, and since we were not paying the British the uh, Barbary Corsairs, they began to seize our vessels. And so it was the seizure of our vessels that prompted the establishment of an American Navy. Hmm. And in 1794, Congress authorized the construction of six frigates to defend us against the pirates of Tripoli, as they were called. Construction was begun on the six vessels. And then, lo and behold, peace came. That is, we made peace with Tripoli. And so construction on three of the vessels was stopped. The other three, construction was continued. And the most important of those that was continued was USS Constitution. And she was built here in Boston. Her keel was laid in 1794, and she was finally launched in 1797. And she went on duty uh, to defend American interests, certainly in the Mediterranean and in the War of 1812 as well. Uh, She is today in Boston. She is a commissioned warship of the United States Navy. That is to say, she is an active unit of the United States Navy. She has a Navy crew aboard, about 50 men and women, uh, and a commander. She is afloat, which means that she is the oldest commissioned warship afloat in the world. Now, HMS Victory, I know, is older, but HMS Victory is not afloat. And several times a year, USS Constitution goes out to sea, or at least she goes out into the harbor. This 4th of July, for example, uh, she'll be going out to celebrate American independence. She will sail out into the harbor to the entrance to the harbor where she will exchange a salute uh, with cannon ashore, 
and then return home. And she sails on other special occasions as well. Uh, so she is the last remaining vessel uh, of that early Navy created in 1794. And uh, when she 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 saw a, a long uh, uh, time of service, um, and I'm just curious to know uh, since we're since we're kind of drifting past the Revolutionary War period into the early days of the Navy, which I think is totally appropriate this Independence Day, uh, that we. Uh, what she was kind of modified, and I'm curious. You know, these the technology was changing. It seems like the ships were. I'm sure the guns were getting better. Manufacturing was getting better uh, every year. Um, what? How was she modified to uh, last a long time? I mean, uh, and yeah, what was her battle history? Well, first of all, she was never beaten in battle. Uh, oh, every battle that she undefeated. Engaged, she won. Undefeated. <laughs> undefeated. Uh, she was built of live oak. Her, her framing is of live oak, which is a very, very dense wood, uh, very, very rot-resistant. So she was built built to last. Uh, she was also built in a very strong fashion, uh, not to get too technical, uh, but in her framework she has diagonal riders. That is to say, normally vessels, the framing of vessels, uh, were just from port to starboard in a semicircular fashion. On USS Constitution, she has those frames, to be sure. But then, in addition, she has diagonal frames down below. Those diagonal frames gave her extra strength. So she was built uh, to last, and her hull shape, she was built for speed. Now, when I say speed, uh, USS Constitution, on, on her best sailing days, uh, probably couldn't do much more than maybe 12 knots. But for a ship her size at that time, she was indeed quite fast. Uh, she was armed with 44 guns. Uh, she actually carried a few more than that, but 44 was the official rating. And she carried carronades on her top deck. Carronades were cannon that had a shot barrel. Keep in mind that a sailing vessel's worst enemy in many ways is the wind. The wind is always seeking to knock you down. So you need to have a stable platform. To have a stable platform, you need to have as much weight as possible, as low as possible. So they tried to put the lighter guns, such as carronades, on the top deck, on the spy deck, as it's called. The heavier guns, the long guns, the 32-pound long guns, were on the gun deck down below. So, the, so she was built to have the lighter cannon on the open spy deck, the heavier cannon down below, which gave her more stability. So she was a fine, fine sailor, and she, ho of course, hoisted thousands of square feet of canvas, uh, three masts as she would, and a fully rigged ship. So she was built for speed. She was built to be durable. And that was certainly shown in her battles when British cannonballs literally, literally bounced off her sides. It was in her battle with HMS Guerriere in August of 1812 uh, that an American seaman saw the cannon, British cannonballs bouncing off the side and is supposed to have cried out, Huzzah! Her sides are made of iron, and hence her nickname, Old Ironsides. Wow. Wow. What a great story. Uh, and I bet you know this, but I'm very curious. Who was, the, who was the naval architect for those early frigates in the U.S. Navy? I hope it was an American. Well, the, the principal architect, uh, the credit is usually given to a man named uh, Joshua Humphreys. Uh, he w was a naval architect working alongside and with a naval constructor named Josiah Fox. 
So uh, Joshua Humphreys and Josiah Fox uh, were the principal designers of these early vessels, and they did a very fine job. What a great history. Um, uh, for the audience out there, Professor Fowler, I didn't do much of the introduction, but uh, uh, Northeastern University for more than four decades as a professor of American history and maritime history uh, and a prolific author, I have to say, Professor, the, the, your, your resume is incredible. Uh, but there's so many great books here. Uh, Rebels Under Sail, I want to mention a few of them. Rebels Under Sail, The Navy and the Revolution, uh, which I noticed was, I think, published in uh, 1976, which would have been the bicentennial year, I think. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it was. And uh, Under Two Flags, The Navy and the Civil War, and co-author of The Sea, William Eller, The Rhode Island Political and the Lord of the Admiralty, among the many, many books that you've written over your long and illustrious career as a historian up in Boston. Uh, what... Tell us about your – do you have a favorite book or what – tell, tell our audience a little <laughs> bit about it. <laughs> it's like asking you which one of your kids is the favorite. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I can't. I, I think my favorite book is always my next one. <laughs> Are you working on a book now? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm, uh, in addition to naval history, I'm very interested in George Washington. Uh, I spend a fair amount of time at Mount Vernon working with teachers, which is a, just an absolute delight. Uh, and so I'm trying to work on a book about George Washington and the period between the American Revolution, the end of the Revolution, 1783, and the time he becomes president in 1789. I want to know what he was doing. Yeah, what was he doing? <laughs> oh, he was doing a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. But he was uh, a man much, he was the great American hero. And I'm fascinated by how much attention was paid to him during these years, but also how much he did. He was he traveled a great deal. He was very much involved in building canals, if you can imagine that, managing a plantation. He was keeping a very careful eye on American politics. And so Washington in those years, we sometimes forget him, you know. He disappears in 1783 and shows up again in 1789. The truth is, in those six years, he was at the center of American politics and American life. And I, I really want to know more about what he was, the important things he was doing during those years. Well, I can't imagine a more uh, perfect figure. And you are totally right. Somehow, old GW gets overlooked. Uh, there's a yeah. lot. There's a lot. I mean, it's incredible because he really is the... Uh, you know, the cherry tree, we all know. The, oh, he, the, he is. The know, dollar bill. For, for, for 200 plus years, Americans, American historians have tried to find some dirt on Washington. We haven't found any yet. <laughs> yeah, he's an incredible, uh, interesting story. And I'll t I, I spent a little time living in Washington, D.C., and escaping down to Mount Vernon was well, always a, a pleasure. And he attended yeah. George Washington University, so That's you true. might as well tell him. <laughs> 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 so his legacy de definitely, uh, yeah, sticks with it me. It is indeed. It is indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what a pleasure for our Independence Day special show. Professor William Fowler from Boston, Massachusetts, a scholar of American and maritime history, a professor at Northeastern University. What an absolute treat. Uh, professor, thank you so much for telling the story of the early American Navy and the early American shoreline. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, Tyler and Peter, thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to, to talk, I guess, to many, many people. I'm accustomed to talking about 30 or so students in the classroom. I 
hope there are more than 30 people out here listening to this. So thanks for giving me that opportunity. You're very welcome, and have a great 4th of July, Professor. 